This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hello, this is Cal Steiger, your host for Discovery, the show for podcast fans and creators. In this episode, we're going south of the border to the U.S. to hear from the National Blood Clot Alliance. Blood clots are more common than people think and can be life-changing as well as life-ending. As part of their education mandate, the National Blood Clot Alliance has created a podcast series called Stop the Clot to make people aware of the potential danger and hear the first-hand accounts of survivors. Today we sample this series with episode one of Stop the Clot from the National Blood Clot Alliance. dedication. That feeling of accomplishment as you rise onto that podium, that feeling of greatness comes from every stroke, every meet, every breath. In these moments, you feel unstoppable. Even amongst our world's greatest athletes, these silent killers are lurking, waiting to end it all. A pulmonary embolism. A blood clot. Every six minutes, somebody in America dies of a blood clot. We're here to change that statistic. Welcome to Taking a Breath, a Stop the Clot podcast a podcast dedicated to bringing awareness of the dangers of blood clots from the clotting disorders community to the world. With the help of many notable blood clot survivors, we are here to give you the knowledge and the skills you need to prevent this silent killer. My name is Leslie Lake. I am the president of the National Blood Clot Alliance, and I am a blood clot survivor. And I'm Todd Robertson. I am the patient engagement liaison for the National Blood Clot Alliance, and I am a six-time blood clot survivor. And we're here to stop the clot. I just kept pushing and kept going to my doctor and kept saying, I need something more, I need something more. Is there anything, can you, can you do a blood test? Can you do another scan? I could not accept the fact that this was just me being crazy. Like, even though I kept having those creeping thoughts that I was, I just, I mean, it was also too, I think anyone would do the same because it was preventing me from working. It was preventing me from swimming fast, which was my job. Though inarguably challenging, sometimes we forget the sacrifice and dedication it takes to become an Olympic athlete. A lifetime of commitment and failure and struggle for the ultimate accolade of being heralded as one of the world's top athletes. As a three-time Olympic medalist and world champion swimmer, our guest is no stranger to the tribulations and loss of an athletic career cut short. We are joined today by the incomparable Katie Hoff to share her journey with her pulmonary embolism and her experience as a blood clot survivor. 
Hello, my name is Katie Hoff Anderson. I am a two-time Olympian, three-time Olympic medalist, uh, current American record holder, former world record holder, uh, and I am a blood clot survivor. My journey goes back to 2014. I was actually making a comeback for my third Olympic team, um, which would have been the Rio Olympic Games in 2016, and loving it. I was training in Miami, a lot older than I was at my first two Olympic Games, and just really enjoying the process. Training, honestly, the fastest I trained in a really long time. And I remember a few weeks before the national championships, which were in Irvine, California, I remember having some soreness in my calf, but just kind of writing it off as I'm sore constantly. Like as an Olympic athlete, you're constantly sore. And so I wrote it off. And then I remember feeling like, oh, is something a little dislodged? And, and did I, you know, maybe pull a muscle or something? But it was very faint. It wasn't anything crazy. So I went to a PT and got adjusted again. And again, it's just like things you just, it's just like almost like brushing your teeth, like dealing with injury, dealing with soreness. And so did one last practice in Miami before I got on a plane, got on a flight for, um, you know, Miami to California. I remember I landed and I remember just feeling like, wow, like I just feel like kind of just weirdness in my chest, like associated where, you know, you kind of feel like maybe you're starting to get like a little bit of a cold. And at that point, the second you you land in the destination where you're about to compete, um, I mean, there's no time for anything. Like even if you don't feel your best, like at that point, it's like, okay, well, I don't feel my best. That's fine. Like I have to perform and execute. And uh, this particular meet was really the lead up for qualifying for the world championships, um, which is a year out from the Olympic games. And so it was really, it was really my coming out party and I was so excited for it. I remember getting in the warm up pool, jumping in and pushing off the wall. And I always give the example of everyone knows Michael Phelps and how he kicks underwater to 15 meters, which is the legal you know, distance you're allowed to, to meet before you have to come up. And I could do that too. And I remember warming up and barely being able to come up. I had to come up at like three or four meters, not 15 meters. And I was like, what in the world? Like, why do I feel a little more breathlessness than normal? Again, push it off. Fast forward now, 24 to 48 hours. I'm a day out from my first race, uh, which is more of a warm up race. And I start to feel like a nagging pain in my right rib area, like like not like more of a sharper pain, not just like a, a nagging pain. I'm like, that's so weird. Like I've been resting, I've been getting massages, I've been prepping for this big meet. Um, and again, ignored it, popped Advil actually and ignored it. Um, woke up that next morning and it is now a searing pain uh, in my right rib again. Like, I mean, I think the one thing I'll pause and say is, you know, Olympic athlete, professional athlete, they get thrown around a lot. But I mean, for me at that point in my career, I had been, you know, professionally working with sponsors. It was my livelihood for over eight years. Like it was like who my identity, my job, like it's like it, it was my whole existence. And so at that point, people would probably be like, well, why wouldn't you go into the doctor? It's like, you know, that's the same thing as like, you wouldn't miss a day of your job if it's a really important presentation for an ailment. That's how I try to kind of make it relatable. And uh, so I, I raced that first morning and I got out and that pain was so great that it felt like at that point, someone was just kind of like stabbing a knife in my ribs. I basically, again, ignored it. 
for the 17th time. Um, so much of that night, the pain got so great that I couldn't even take in enough of air, like a breath in because it was so painful that I passed out face down uh, in my hotel room. And my like my husband now, but my uh, fiance at the time decided not to call the ambulance because for people who don't know, if you don't have an exemption and you get any type of IV or any type of um, injection at a hospital, you're disqualified from the meet from any type of competition. And so we didn't. Uh, went in to see multiple doctors over those the next five days. I saw this hope that I was going to compete um, on day five, which was my best event. At first they said it was just um, probably an intercostal strain, which I'm like, I feel like I've been able to be tough it out through strains in the past. Ultimately had to pull out of the meet, which was devastating. Flew back home, which is crazy to now know what was in my lungs at the time. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, like I was, I was a wreck. Went into my primary care, got uh, my first diagnosis of probably 33. Uh, they did a X-ray, no blood work, an X-ray, and they thought, oh, it's pneumonia. Here's a Z-Pack. Okay, great, perfect Z-Pack. I'll be back in it in five days. I can get back to it. I'm still training for real. That's still in my sights. Doesn't get better. So now I accelerate about seven weeks just to speed things up for the story. I mean, they thought I had pneumonia. They thought I had asthma. They thought it was the intercostal strain. I at one point even went to this holistic doctor that thought my diaphragm was out of place and like he was hitting me in the head with something while I was ex. I mean, it got ridiculous. And I mean, I say all this in jest now, but I mean, it was like I was extremely depressed, extremely lost feeling like I'm like I have made two Olympic teams I thought I was tough maybe I'm not as tough as I thought <sighs> Jill trying to swim and practice and just running out of gas and, and hurting every single day finally finally and this is the one I want I, I would love to dive into this I asked my primary for a simple non-invasive blood test that tested my d-dimer my d-dimer was slightly elevated even then he was like it could be a blood clot, but psh, you're young, you're healthy. There's no way. There's no way. Go get the CAT scan. Sure enough, two blood clots in the bottom of my right lung. I'm admitted to the hospital, obviously put on blood thinners, and I'm still not understanding the gravity of now knowing how many people die per year, but um, really almost relieved because I'm seven, eight weeks without any diagnosis thinking I'm crazy. I'm like, well, at least I know I'm not making it up. At least I know, but I, I still didn't have the, the gratitude of like, wow, I'm alive. Like I flew six hours on a plane. I'm alive. I didn't know at the time what a D-dimer even, I didn't even know what a pulmonary embolism was. So it wasn't on my radar. I just kept pushing and kept going to my doctor and kept saying, I need something more. I need something more. Is there anything? Can you, can you do a blood test? Can you do another scan? Like I just, I could not accept the fact that this was just me being crazy. Like, even though I kept having those creeping thoughts that I was, I just, I mean, it was also too, I think anyone would do the same because it was preventing me from working. It was preventing me from swimming fast, which was my job. And so um, while I still, I really had doubt of whether I was right or not, I was like, there's no option. Like I have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I have to keep asking questions. And they, I mean, they were annoyed with me. Like the doctors, the doctors were definitely like, this girl is crazy. Like why? I mean, even, even after the blood test was 
came back, he was still not convinced. Um, and so I think, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, don't like follow your gut, follow your intuition, like keep pushing. Like, it doesn't matter what these doctors say or, you know, how they look at you. Like, you know, like, deep down, like if there's something still wrong, like keep fighting for it. There's a level of, yes, like the doctor should do these tests or that, but there's also a level of being your own advocate and knowing, hey, like breathlessness, you know, pain in my side, uh, wheezing, like there's so, I mean, the list goes on and on, but I think that's why I'm I'm so passionate about being an ambassador for the National Blood Clot Alliance because if I had known those early on signs and even understood what a, I didn't know what a pulmonary embolism was. I didn't know what those words meant, even when they told me that I'm like, what? what does that mean? Like what I don't understand. And I think if I had been able to say like, Hey, like knowing what does a D dimer mean, knowing it's a simple blood test to rule something out. Like I understand a lot of times doctors won't order things because obviously there's, you know, exposure to radiation and, and those things can be detrimental. But when it's something like a blood test or it's something that as simple as just knowing to ask and put it out there, that's where the power comes and that's where you save people's lives or people save their own lives because the knowledge is power. And I can't tell you how many people will reach out to me and be like, oh my gosh, like I heard your story and my uncle went through something similar. And so, you know, blood clots came up and we tested, you know, it's just, it's, it's infectious. It, it travels fast. But the fact that so many Americans have zero, zero clue of what a pulmonary embolism is, and yet it's killing 100,000 people a year. You know, that, that, that needs to change for sure. When it comes to learning, admitting ignorance and being open to new information can be difficult. Nobody wants to look or feel foolish, but in cases of medical ambiguity, though the adage sounds overused and a little simple, knowledge is in fact power. My name is Alok Karana. I'm a medical oncologist and an expert in thrombosis uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board for the National Blood Clot Alliance. There's many different lab assays that can be used to understand if patients are at higher risk or lower risk of getting blood clots. And one of those assays is a D-dimer, uh, which is basically a lab assay. It's very simple. It's just like going to the doctors and getting your blood drawn. And when it's run, it measures a clotting protein in your blood, and it gives us a sense of is the blood clotting faster or slower than, than average. So there's a normal range, and then there's a high range. There are some conditions, so for instance, people with cancer might have a higher range of D-dimer just from having cancer. That doesn't necessarily put them at risk for blood clots, but it's, it's one of the tests that we use to understand a patient's state um, and propensity to clot. The information given at that point, I, I think they still were like, great, you go on a blood thinner and you should be good to go. But I had, you know, scar tissue build up because of there were clots in my lungs for almost two months. And so I, I wish that there had been more information provided to me because I was at that point thinking, oh, I'm not going to have any issues. And we hear this all the time. People are like, oh, I, I take the blood thinners. I'm on my way. I'll be good to go. I won't, I'll be back to, you know, exercising. You just don't know. Some people are, are fearful about it. Some people don't know. I was just like, okay, great. Rio, here I come. I could get back to, you know, 
exercising normally, but when we're talking about making Olympic games and the difference between, you know, first and eighth is sometimes four or five tenths of a second, um, you know, that 3%, 2% decreased lung capacity from the scar tissue in my lungs made a huge difference. So I continuously had issues finishing practices or finishing a race that I, way that I needed to, um, and ultimately had to decide in 2015, December of 2015, that this is making me miserable. Like this is not, this is not going to go well. Doctor's responses was always great, but you should be grateful to be alive. And my response was always like, so if someone took away your ability to practice medicine, just like that, would you casually say it in that way? Retiring from anything, I would say like retiring from a job, retiring from your sport, moving on job transition. There's so many different transitions and new chapters in life. Anytime you do that willingly, it's already hard. But to have it done where I I was excited, I was motivated, I was actually enjoying the sport. And so to have it just feel like it was ripped away from me from something that was completely out of my control. I'd say any athlete that has to retire because of an injury it's 10 times harder because you're you're dealing with those emotions and resentment truly i had so much resentment and anger of like why me why did this happen and um and then obviously you know transitioning out of the sport i mean it took me i mean at least 5 years 5 6 years to find my footing find my passion find my niche again um but you know like like i said it's it's just um it's, it's the curveballs of life, but it's, I think it's also why I've, I've found my purpose of being able to speak so passionately on the subject so that others, you know, maybe don't have to go through the same experience. I went and spoke at Capitol Hill uh, earlier this year, and I had such a range of emotions, but the overlying one was just relief to some extent and relief because whenever something bad happens, right, you always want it to come back for full circle and have it make sense. I would say like, like this happened because, and sometimes it takes a week, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes like seven years. It might not even be, it might not even happen. Like I just feel so fortunate that my experience that for the longest time I felt like this is so unfair. Like, why did this happen? This sucks. It happened because I have a strong voice and I am going to go after it and share my story and make change happen for others. And so I feel like that's just, it's my purpose. That's what I'm supposed to do. And that's why that happened. And so I think being able to have that full circle moment kind of made me feel complete in a way and relieved that I found that, um, which just leads to so much joy and and passion and um, just, just feeling like I can, I can make a difference in the world, which is, is sometimes hard to figure out how to do, right? That's that's part of why we're here on this earth. And sometimes it's small things that you do, but being able to feel like I can do it in such a large way um, is pretty special. There is nothing that compares to when you sit down in that seat. My heart rate went from like 60 or 70, I swear to like 170. Like it just ramped. I felt such responsibility on, I I just, I felt like everyone who's ever had a loved one who had a blood clot, anyone who's ever died from a blood clot, any, like, I just felt like I was representing them. And so I truly, it was an honor, but I truly felt the weight of that on my shoulders.
I asked uh, Congress for $5 million um, in funding, which is still a drop in the bucket, uh, honestly, like compared to what every other, I mean, you know, it's, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month and you see pink everywhere. You asked me what I'd love to see in the future. I would love to see everyone wearing red and polka dots. And I want it to, I want there to be a 5K that that people run for, for National Blood Clot Alliance and, and for blood clot awareness. Like that is how prolific I want it to be. And I think going back to, it's the funding. Like we, there were people in there that we'd like, you know, 200 million. And I'm over here like, we got five million. You have to start somewhere um, because obviously our funding isn't even at a million right now, but you have to start somewhere. But I mean, I am so optimistic that that's going to happen. And I'm so optimistic that's just the beginning. Unfortunately, money is a, is a huge driver in, in getting things done and getting the message out there. And so um, we're going to keep fighting. And with Leslie at the helm, I'm so confident that we will knock down more doors and um, get all of those things to happen in the very near future. It's not cancer, right? Where they don't have a cure yet. I mean, they're close, I feel like, but just being able to re reduce people that are dying. Um, number one, number two, I think the, the after piece, like the mental health side of things, you know, the, the sharing of the story. Yes. It helps people understand the signs and symptoms, which helps prevent death. But the aftermath, like the, the, what about the people that are living? I think that piece goes by the wayside right now too much. And I think helping people feel like they're not alone, helping people feel like they're not the only one. You know, when I was diagnosed, I didn't know about, you know, stoptheclot.org. I, I found it towards the end of things going on, but to be able to go on and read, oh my gosh, like this is happening to other athletes, this is happening to other people. Like that's normal. Like having scar tissue buildup and not returning like that. Like I'm not a free for that. You know, I think there's so uh, much PTSD that is associated with this, with getting a pulmonary embolism. And, you know, I still struggle like when I, you know, push it to the max on like the Peloton or on a run, like I still have that PTSD moment of being breathlessness and having that when I had my clot. And so I just want people to not feel alone. I want people to spring back and get back to them and what they enjoy and love way more often. Um, and that just becomes that much more easier as we all speak and share our story and reach out to each other and, and support each other. In the beginning, it made me very resentful and just kind of looking at life in a negative way. Like why did, like, I feel like I overcame so much to, to be able to get back in my comeback and enjoy swimming again. And then it's like, oh my gosh, like a, a curveball again, like why? And I think being able to battle out of that and go through a lot of like self-work and intensives and therapy, I think gave me a completely different perspective on life. Um, that has allowed me to connect with more people, that has allowed me to speak other people's language. Um, you know, it, it, I think we all get in our own bubbles. And so I think experiencing something like an injury, um, you know, like a pulmonary embolism that so many people have gone through, like I wouldn't have been able to help people if I hadn't gone through that. But 
Yes. In the beginning, it was impacted me extremely negatively. Um, and I, I had to work through that. But I think because I've worked through it and come out on the other side of it, I'm a better person. I'm, you know, have better perspective and I'm able to be um, that much better in my life moving forward. I think the best advice is to lean on your loved ones. I feel like I was very fortunate that my husband saw when I was struggling or helped me recognize it too. I think something like that happens to you and you just kind of go into just fight mode, right? You're like, okay, well, I just have to get through this, right? And you don't really understand like, why am I doing this? How is this affecting me emotionally? Um, Is this from that? You know, for the longest time, I didn't realize that me breaking down, bawling out of nowhere because I was breathless was connected to that. Like, which sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but I just, I was just like, okay, got to push forward, got to do this. I would be bawling and continuing to pedal. And my husband would walk in the the room and was like, what are you doing? Like, stop, stop. Like that's like, stop pushing, you know, and you need those people around you that, that see you have seen you go through it and can just shake you a little bit and help you understand and, and be aware because nothing will happen. No healing, um, will happen unless you understand like where it's coming from. And I, that helped me a ton because then it took away, oh my gosh, like I'm weird or I'm a freak or I'm not tough enough. It was, oh my, oh, well that's, that happened to me before. And that's the connection. And it's not me. It, it's not me. It's, it's what happened to me. And, and that, unlocked so much for me of not coming down and being hard on myself or feeling alone. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They just kind of lock it up or keep their emotions inside and don't share with anyone. I'm not saying you have to shout from the rooftops like I am, but I think finding your, you know, your trust tree of people that you can be vulnerable with and you can share like, Hey, here's how I'm feeling today. Or like you said, Hey, like I am freaking out before I get on this flight. Like the person who's traveling with you should probably know that so they can support you in the times when you know, like, but people, people don't because people think they have to tough it out and there's times to tough it out and there's times to reach out for help. And this is one of those times. Thank you so much. I, I thank you both. It's anytime I get to talk about blood clot awareness, I am in, doesn't matter when, where <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Even in the face of life's most devastating unknowns, knowledge is power. Knowing the signs, symptoms, and preventative care associated with clotting risk allows you the autonomy and strength to embrace life without fear of these sudden events. We want to thank Katie for sharing her story with us today and thank you for joining us for another episode of Taking a Breath. For more information on risk, prevention, and community, please visit stoptheclot.org. We know the patient because we are the patient. Together with listeners like you, we can collectively stop the clot. Thanks for joining me today. If you missed any part of this episode or would like to hear it again, go to wherever you get your favorite podcasts and search for Discovery. Please join me next week as we sample and discover great ideas, unique insights, and entertainment of the podcast universe on Discovery. I'm Cal Steiger. Until next time. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. 
send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.